The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long E Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long E supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long E has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long E products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. Right? Infrastructure was really exciting in the early part of the 20th century. And we're going into an era where we're going to literally replace all of that, right? We're moving from where growth in the infrastructure seg- segment was, you know, painting the walls of the coal power, power plant, you know, control room to an era where, where we're going to replace all the technology of our entire energy and industrial system with all new carbon-free technology. How cheap is clean power, really? And what else might it unlock? This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So I've said this before, but there, in my mind, is no path, at least no realistic path, to deep decarbonization that does not involve a clean power sector. And in my opinion, there is no path to a clean power sector that does not involve deploying the hell out of wind and solar and lithium-ion batteries pretty much immediately and basically everywhere. Those three technologies don't solve the entire problem of climate change, but I think of them as being the workhorses that will power, so to speak, a broader multi-sectoral decarbonization approach. Why? For two reasons. First, the power sector itself is around a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions, and wind and solar are the cheapest tools that we've got to mostly eliminate those emissions. But second, if we make power clean and we keep it cheap and reliable, it then becomes the key that unlocks a host of other decarbonization pathways, from hydrogen to carbon removal to transportation. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast lately talking about these other pathways, but I want to come back to the workhorse. What exactly is happening in this utility-scale renewables market? How cheap are those resources, really? And what's holding them back? And if they work as we think they might, what might they unlock? So there's nobody better to have that conversation with than Sheldon Kimber, who I've known for a long time. Sheldon is the CEO of Intersect Power, which is one of the largest developers and owners of utility-scale clean power and storage in the U.S., Intersect has developed gigawatts, literally gigawatts, of solar and storage assets. They announced a fundraise earlier this year of over $600 million in combined debt and equity to expand their operations, and they have a long-term view of this future. Sheldon also has a long history, having spent more than 15 years in clean electricity and more than 20 years in the electricity sector, so he knows this stuff. We had a great conversation, and with no further ado, I give you Sheldon Kimber. Sheldon, Welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you here. Um, how long have you now been in the clean power business, would you say? Uh, I started in the power business in uh, you know the 
uh, right around the turn of the millennium. Um, and at that point, we we all thought that gas power was clean power. Um, you know, Calpine, who I worked for for a long time, was uh, was repowering America with uh, clean uh, natural gas. Uh, so, uh, realistically though, I've been in the clean power business since about, uh, 2006, 2007, when I got out of business school and, uh, you know, helped to start and, uh, and, and build uh, recurrent energy. Um, so, so long, long time, longer, longer than most. How's that? Yeah, that's, that's good. All right. So 15 or so years in what we now define as clean power Add another, six or seven years if you want to define uh, natural gas as clean power as well. So let's start with then where we are today, given your long historical trajectory here. Like, how would you characterize the state of clean power today? Chaotic. Uh, I think, I think, I think it's, um, it's, 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 it's an industry that everybody expects uh, explosive growth from, um, you know, and everybody kind of uh, knows that it's inevitable in the end. Um, but, but in the near term, you know, uh, I would characterize it as being, uh, marred by sort of fits and starts, um, you know, of, of, uh, you know, not wanting to get into policy or anything, but, but trade issues and supply chain. And, you know, there, there's, there's so many, um, you know, it, 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 like every industry has, has just been through the ringer in the last couple of years, right? Not, not so much all bad, but just the volatility, um, you know, so it's, it seems like every day you're responding to some other crisis uh, in the business. Um, and so while the, the general trend is kind of up and to the right and there's enormous growth opportunity, um, you know, for, for, for everybody in the sector, um, it, it, I keep joking with the team. There must be easier ways to make money and to save the world, right? Like it's 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 uh, it's uh, it's it's definitely harder to save the world and make money than you than you think it is, or than it than it sounds like it will be. Yeah, I think I, I think you're hitting on something, which is like people who are not in that market think of it as inevitable and think of it as like you know utility scale solar and wind have won. And it's just a matter of time until they reach whatever their natural end state is of some high penetration on the grid. Uh, and that belies the complexity of getting from here to there, which is like a long journey with a lot of challenges along the way. You, you alluded to the fits and starts. And I guess I wonder whether part of the reason why things like trade issues and whatever else it might be mar this market today is because we've we've gone through this transformation where like when you started uh, at Recurrent, you know, 15 years ago, it felt to me like at that time, you know, I don't know, utility scale solar was three, four bucks a watt, maybe something more than that even, right? And so you could make a big difference on the economics just by driving down the cost of components. But where we are today now, it's like really cheap relative to historical standards. And the hardware is especially cheap. And so everything else matters a lot more. Is that right? Yeah. That's absolutely true. Everything else does matter a lot more. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so yeah, it's absolutely true. And now you're, you're exposed to like, you know, even just things like underlying steel commodity costs, right. Or labor availability, um, are significant, you know, portions of your, of your, your total bill. Um, logistics, logistics have gone off the charts, right. And, and so anything you're shipping in from, from out of the country is, you know, just, astronomical and I, I, I um, was told by one supplier that um, uh, uh, to get 
what used to cost about $3,500 a container from, from, you know, China to the U S West coast, um, that, you know, this was, this was in the Q2 where the logistics, uh, impact was really acute. Um, people were paying like $20,000 plus to get a, a, a container. Right. And, you know, if you're Walmart or someone bringing in, you know, or, or Apple bringing in iPhones at a really high margin business, that's one thing. But if you're bringing in like literally like, you know, steel posts, uh, for, for, you know, a, an infrastructure project, it's, it's a much lower margin business and you can eat those margins pretty quick. So yeah, I think, I think there's that. I think, I think the other thing that I'll say is the hardware also is going up, right? I think, I think there's two things that are worth talking about, um, on that kind of cost and, you know, like, like the, the, the traditional trajectory from 2007 or whatever, when I first kind of started getting into that $4 a watt solar. And it's sort of been this bid to a PPA, hope that the price goes down, make a margin, right? Aggressively bid a PPA, hope that the price goes down. And so it's just been following that down. I think there's two implications um, for the future though. And that is two things you got to reckon with. And they're like everything I'm going to say, probably overly complicated, but I'll try to com- explain them as simply as I can. One is is actually really simple, and that is off-takers are getting the best of this. Um, you know, I've often talked to people in government, um, others who've said, you know, well, where's the credit, tax credit going? You know, are you guys making a, a killing? You know, what's the, you know, where's it going in the supply chain? Is it all going to China for panels? You know, and my answer to that is, yeah, a lot of it is going to offshore for equipment, but those guys aren't making great margins either. Most of the suppliers are getting hammered, even offshore. Um, you know, it's been a windfall for like the big tech companies. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's really, there's, 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 you know. The big tech companies who are the buyers of the, the um, offsite renewables, you're saying, so when, Go- when Google signs a PPA for utility scale solar, they're getting a steal. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, look, they deserve some of it because they definitely incubated the market at high prices early on. And that's great. But now the expectation is that I'm going to go sign a PPA with, you know, someone at $19 a megawatt hour for 15 years. Right. It used to be that that these these contracts were 20, 25 years and then it made some sense. But, you know, well, even then it didn't make a lot of sense. So I guess I guess where I'm going with this is it's it actually is a pretty significant transfer of the subsidy right now to the off takers, right? You know, whereas these people used to be paying mid forties, maybe for gas fired when I was at Calpine, you know, like $45 a megawatt hour for, you know, long-term PPAs, depending on the market, obviously, but you were talking, you know, 40 to 50 bucks. Um, and that was full carbon, right? And now, now you're talking about, you know, with batteries, which begins to shape it and make it less intermittent and make it look actually like a gas product, with batteries, renewables are expected to hit kind of, you know, low 30s, mid 30s, you know, like, like you're, you're really, you're at a point where people are getting like a 25% discount over their cost structure from just a few years ago. And they're expecting more and they just keep expecting it to go down. And that's reversing. To what degree then? I mean, because at the same time, right, we talked about the like, perceived inevitability of this transition now, and it's born in part by those prices, right? The fact that you can now get a, a somewhat shaped renewable PPA in the 30s is the thing that makes it such that we say, oh my God, this is obviously inevitable and ultimately going to you know, take over this market. So is it that the buyers are saying, are, are being you know, 
greedy or maybe that's the wrong word, but like always expecting lower prices? Or is it that these are the prices that unlock the growth that we need? I think, I think, I think, you know, in, in the sort of the microeconomics of the power grid, we use the term inframarginal, right? And, and, and we are now inframarginal. Renewables are inframarginal, meaning they are, they are not the margin, they're below the marginal resource, right? In most cases. And it's obviously a little bit screwy to talk about renewables on a marginal cost basis, but you get my point. They are now cheaper than the kind of, you know, marginal gas plant, right? And, um, I don't, I guess my point is, I don't think renewables are going to go up. But I think it's time we stop looking at it as like renewables need to come down, right? I think as you begin to see the explosion of demand, that's really what we need is, you know, we, we got to continue to have the tax credits and the cost-based support to, to maintain the, 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 the low cost structure of the industry. But in, increasingly now we need demand side uh, uh, you know, policy supports, right? Either, either, and, or, or maybe we don't, I mean, we've got, honestly, the voluntary market is pretty robust, but we need that to continue to grow one way or another, either, either through, you know, mandates or, or just through what, what's going on. There's a lot, a grand appetite, if you will, for, for carbon-free, uh, energy products. Um, and we need to let that expand, right? And I think, frankly, we're maturing and I think that will happen. It will happen relatively naturally. I think in the next few years, on the, at least on the power grid side of this, you're going to see people begin to realize that, um, that plants have value and that supply has a constraint, right? That, that supply isn't infinite at ever decreasing price points. And that will mean that you'll see price points in the, in the wholesale electricity markets on the grid stabilize. I think you may continue to see in, you know, pretty crazy, um, uh, you know, LCOE compression in, you know, some of the other areas of clean energy that we'll talk about, right? Places where maybe you're making green hydrogen or desalination or something like that off the grid, right? Because those projects aren't going to be burdened with interconnection. They're not going to be burdened with, they must be in this location. You know, you can pick the cheapest, best resource and just go mega, you know, in terms of the project scale. So, right. Yeah, I want to come back to that. We're, we're going to spend a bunch of time on that because I think that stuff is really interesting and maybe the next Vanguard. But before we get off the grid, just talking about the sort of run-of-the-mill utility scale, solar or solar plus storage today. So you, you've talked a little bit about the kind of prices the market expects. Obviously, the other dynamics are contract structure and term and all that kind of stuff. How has all that been evolving? And you know, is it still very much a buyer's market? And so if you're a supplier, you're just signing whatever kind of PPA the buyer wants you to? Well, I think, I think, and actually this was, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm famous for saying I've got two things and then only talking about the first one. So I'll, I'll actually say this is the second thing I was going to say. And that is um, the contract structures are the things you really need to dig into to understand this market. Because, you know, people like to throw out, oh, the, the cheapest PPA for renewable power ever has been signed. But what the problem is, they don't realize those PPAs started at 30 years and then went to 25 and then they went to 20. And now the average PPA is probably in the 15 year range. And why is it that we're getting to those price points? Because most of the merchant curves, the, you know, the, the estimates for what power prices will be beyond the contract term are, you know, anybody's guess, right? And some of them, depending on the developer, can be wildly inflated. And so what's happening is, like, it's, it's sort of strange, actually, to say that when I plug into my model, what if I can price, my model tells me I can actually price a 15-year contract cheaper than I can price a longer-term contract because 
of what I've put into my model for what the future price of electricity is going to be. So it actually incentivizes people to price these shorter and shorter, you know, tenor contracts at lower and lower prices. And, 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 you know, that, so when someone says solar is selling at $18 megawatt hour, it's selling at that for like 15 years. And then the model tells you that the price needs to be, you know, 60 bucks for the rest of time. Yeah. So to, just to lay this out for anybody who's not familiar with how these contracts are structured and the projects are developed. I mean, what you're saying is, so a solar project is a 30 year asset, maybe 30 years plus, right? But 30 years you can finance 35 now. Okay, great. So 35 year project. Um, and what you're going to get from your buyer, your power purchase agreement buyer is a 15 year fixed, maybe fixed price, maybe it has some escalator, but you'll get a fixed 15 year contract where you know the pricing for the power that you sell. Those 15 years of revenue are not nearly going to be enough to pay back your project and earn a return. So the question is what happens in the following 25 years or 20 years? Uh, and there, what ends up happening is you've built in, as you said, this merchant curve, which is basically now you're off contracts. So you're just selling power into the wholesale market at whatever the price is in the wholesale market. And you have to make some assumption about what that price is going to be. And that's 15 years in the future in a market that is volatile in a month, let alone in 15 years. So that's where there's sort of a finger in the air thing. And the big risk here is that because there's this incentive to win deals, you have developers who assume these merchant curves that are pretty inflated, thinking they're going to get a lot of revenue on the back part of this project. We have no idea whether that's going to be true or not. And so they're, they're sitting on a bunch of risk there. Do you think that this, there's a risk that this blows up in owners' faces in 15 years or 12 years when you know some of these come off contract? I don't think it's going to blow up because I think the financial markets have begun to realize this, right? Um, we're not alone in this, but I've spent you know the last... 18 months to 24 months doing a tour of the financial markets, <laughs> uh, whether we were raising common equity or project equity or debt on all of our capital raisings, you know, our corporate deck basically, you know, says two things. One, it talks about what we're going to talk about it in the, you know, in the future, uh, green, green hydrogen and all of that. But in terms of our current portfolio and our current business, it really focuses on this concept. And that is long-term contracts in today's market destroy value. And I think most of the financial markets and financial investors are coming around to that concept. And the way they destroy value is this. I'll give you this example to try to keep it as clear as possible. <laughs> um, and that is, let's say I've got two, a, a project, same project, and I put a contract. And in the one case, I put a 15-year contract on it for you know, somewhere in the low 20s, let's say. And let's say it's in Texas. It's a $22 PPA. Uh, on the other case, I take... Uh, I go into the Texas market and I do something like a um, eight-year hedge with a bank or, you know, something like that, or maybe even like a, you know, seven, eight, ten-year put option where I just put a floor under my price for the first few years and then ride the, mer the, the market uh, through that. Now, when I take those two projects and I put them in my model, what you see is that the uh, expected return, and what I mean by the expected return is kind of the base case, right? We put our, we've got our merchant curve in. And, and, uh, and we look at the expected return. You might see that the, the one with the 15-year PPA has uh, an IRR, an expected IRR based on the, the, the merchant price and what you think of the mar market prices of, you know, 7.5%. Uh, and the one that has the, the, the put option has an expected return that's like 12.5%, right? Which makes sense because the one, the, the one with the, the put option is riskier, right? There's, there's no certainty about the revenue 
uh, during, you know, during the contract period other than just that floor price. So that's fine. You would expect that you would get a higher return for taking more risk. Now, let's take the exact same models. They've got the exact same predictions about the future merchant pricing. And let's cut those merchant prices by 50%, right? What you see is that in the long-term, supposedly safe contract, the seven and a half goes down to, you know, four or three and a half, right? And the, and the 12 and a half might go down to seven. But two observations there. <laughs> um, one, the low case of the risky project is actually almost at the expected case <laughs> of the less risky project. And the less risky project is now a crushingly low return that no one would ever want, right? And so you're fooling yourself into believing that you're less exposed to merchant prices, but all you're really doing is amping up your, your, your exposure on the back end, right? From the end of the contract period forward. And so, you know, people are fooled by the fact that the drop from say 12 and a half down to seven is bigger than the drop from say seven and a half down to four, right? Which means the volatility is higher. That's, that's important. They're more, the shorter term contract or, the, or the, the put option is more volatile, but on a risk adjusted basis, the risk, the risk adjusted return is still much better on the, the non-long-term contract. Anyway, that's a very long example, but that's what I've been traveling around the country in Zoom preaching for the last two years. So where, so where does that lead us then in terms of how this market develops? I mean, it's one of these things where like, so, you know, with a relatively fresh eye toward it, um, we need to build out hundreds of gigawatts more of this stuff. We need to do it basically as fast as possible because we need to decarbonize the power sector and then we need to use the power sector to decarbonize a bunch of other sectors that we'll talk about. And yet, even today, long before we've hit kind of maximal penetration of these technologies, we're running into these contract structure issues and projects that might explode in buyers' hands, things like or in, in owners' hands and things like that. Um, so what is the, I mean, where, where do you think the market heads? How does it reach some kind of stasis that allows for sustainable growth for a decade? Well, it goes one of two ways, right? Um, and, and the decision point is um, at what point uh, and who imposes discipline on the market. So in one case, it could go toward uh, increasing contract lengths, right, and higher prices. So, you know, you're going to see policies coming down from the government on clean energy standards and things like that. Increasingly, you've got, you know, ESG standards coming in for more and more public companies. So demand for clean power is just exploding, right? So let's say that that demand side um, uh, meets, let's say, a bank market or a financing market that says, wait a second, guys, we see this risk now. And in order to finance a plant, we need you to get to longer term contracts. Well, the market could equilibrate in that case uh, to, you know, 20, 25 year contracts at better and better prices, right? So you could see that happen and the market would readjust back to, okay, there's an enormous amount of demand. We now have some pricing power and some power in terms of the tenors we can extract from people. And that's going to get pushed back on customers. And that, it, you know, so that's one path, um, you know, power markets and, and capital intensive commodity industries have rarely exhibited that level of, um, self-restraint, let's say. You know, I think I think the 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 second path is, uh, you know, probably the more likely, and that is um, we're going to see, uh, you know, 
financing structures change to accommodate the, the, the new risk profile of the contracts, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, before you used to have these 20-year contracts or 25-year contracts at nice, juicy prices, and you'd just go out and you'd put a ton of debt on the project, right? You'd go get a, a long-term, you know, 30-year con- or 30-year loan or 27-year loan or whatever it is, and you'd just basically lever that thing up. Some developers, if the contract was rich enough, could even take cash out of the project and still retain ownership of the equity. That's how good these contracts were, you know. Um, but basically in those days, we, we were just bond salesmen, right? I mean, that's what we were. We were packaging solar bonds, right? And, and it was basically just a treasury auction. You'd show up and bid your cost of capital. You wouldn't even really bid for risk, right? You just know that like this is an SCE bond plus 50 basis points for, you know, the risk of whether this plant works or not or whatever, you know, and oh, by the way, the plant's solid state electronics, so it can't be that bad. Um, you know, so, so you, you've got that on the one hand. Now what you're going to see is more and more uh, uh, portfolio financings that are not necessarily single asset, and you're going to see um, mixes of contracts. So you might see some that have an eight-year hedge, some that have a 15-year rec contract, some that, so they've got a blended uh, uh, portfolio of different offtakes in different markets. So you've got huge diversification. So there's no, you know, singular risk. And then finally, um, these are, you're, you're essentially going to say, instead of saying, I'm going to do a 1.1 coverage ratio on a fully contracted $20, you're going to say, I'm going to do a 2x coverage ratio on, you know, a totally uncontracted or a, a partially contracted $40, right? What you find is that your, your, your kind of financing capacity or debt capacity doesn't go down that much. You actually, you know, if you add up the tax equity you can get plus the, the term financing you can get using either of these structures, the amount of common equity you're left having to put in at the top to own the asset is, is not materially that, that much different. It, you, you have to put a little bit more equity in in the shorter tenor business, but that kind of leads me more to where I think the industry is going, which we can talk about in a second, which is the implications of that financing strategy mean that, that, that the structures of the companies in this industry are going to change radically. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll come back to that. I guess the final question for you on the kind of current state of affairs, you alluded to this earlier. You also just talked about these kind of blended portfolios. I want to talk about storage for a second. Um, I, I guess simple question maybe to frame this up, like what portion of projects that you're developing right now or projects that you're bidding right now are include energy storage? Depends on the market. Um, you know, everything in markets that has, you know, that have essentially capacity or ancillary uh, market, you know, ancillary services markets um, has storage. Uh, so California, you know, we've we're, we're actually um, we're we're fully contracted and we've, you know, procured fully procured and we're in the process of, of, of constructing about one and a half gigawatt hours of battery storage uh, right now um, across uh, three projects in California. Um, the. In the Texas market, um, you know, where we're building uh, over a gigawatt um, of solar, right now those projects were, were, were on the fence, honestly, about whether to put storage on just because of, you know, what you, essentially the only revenue stream there is energy arbitrage, right? So, so you don't have capacity markets and things like that to give you some of the sort of guaranteed returns. I, I will tell you that, um, you know, I think that storage is being done Storage is nowhere, it has a long way to go before it grows up. And I think, um, you know, players like us are almost playing in a completely different market for storage than most of the kind of, you know, 
ES Volta plus power storage only developers. We're, we're literally doing a completely different product. So for us, you know, uh, I think the answer to that question is, is very different than what you might get for, you know, from like folks that know, no markets from a standalone strategy, storage strategy. To the extent that they're, so to the extent that you're doing projects that are getting PPAs where there's a buyer, it's a utility or it's a corporate or whatever it might be. I guess the other way to ask this question is like, how much, is there increasing demand for shaped products? Do they care when you deliver? Yeah, yeah. So so um, that that's exactly where I was kind of going and alluding to with, you know, what I was saying before. And that is, um, you know, the early battery markets, uh, and they, they still exist. I mean, plenty of these small, relatively new kind of storage-only developers are making a great living in ancillary services markets, load pocket development, um, you know, really high, you know, kind of... Uh, 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 you know, capacity uh, payment type deals. And a lot of those deals are getting done through kind of tolling agreements, essentially. They're basically leases. The, you know, the utility figures out how to use the battery. They just pay you, you know, a, a, a capacity charge, right? Or, you know, some, some sort of uh, uh, tolling arrangement, essentially. Um, what I was alluding to earlier is that our business is completely different from that because for us, we not of the one and a half gigawatt hours we have, and I would predict of any storage we do into the future, we will hardly ever, because of our power marketing sophistication and our linkage to actually having, you know, a, a solar and energy production next to it, we will always see more value in kind of taking apart the constituent pieces and revenue streams ourselves and monetizing those into the market. So to your point about shaped, our our batteries are not being told to utilities so they can shape it. You know, we are actually selling utilities like a seven by 16 block product, right? Where the battery doesn't necessarily give us the exact block shape that we're selling. We might be short a few hours, long a few hours, but overall we're blocking it out enough that our risk profile is, is, is largely, um, you know, covered. Uh, and, and, so that's the product we're selling into the market, and then we're selling the RA separately, and we're selling the you know the 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 spin and the ancillaries and all of that. And when you look at our performance, all of that's behind the curtain on our side, not behind the curtain on the utility side. And you know that's because we've got a really sophisticated origination group and uh, financing capability that's also relatively sophisticated to kind of monetize and finance off those revenue streams. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs. 
and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. All right, let's move on to the fun stuff and talk about the the future here. So I think you and I are generally aligned on this notion that historically cheap, abundant renewables in the future are not only valuable because they could decarbonize the power sector, but that they can also potentially be the key that unlocks a bunch of other massive decarbonization opportunities. How do you think about that from the perspective of a business that is building renewable projects today? How important is that to you? And you know, how far off into the future do you think it is? I mean, it's huge. It's the future of our company. I mean, I, I had a meeting this morning for two hours. It, first of all, they're my favorite meetings. They're, they're by far and away. Not that I don't love our core business, um, but, you know, when you're slugging it out with tax equity versus spending two hours talking about the future of, you know, uh, uh, fuels markets and green hydrogen, um, you know, I can tell you which one I'd rather do all day. Uh, <clears throat> but I think they're going to be enormously valuable. And I, I actually think for you know, <clears throat> for folks like us, um, we're, we're probably going to actually be more focused on uh, w- what we are kind of calling the, the five inevitable, you know, these inevitable industries of tomorrow, right? So we see the exact same thing you mentioned, which is that the kind of zero carbon industries of tomorrow are enabled by the clean, you know, the clean energy technologies of today. Make no mistake, they're the technologies that are actually around today. We're not waiting, waiting for like whiz-bang new things, right? You know, these are, you know, industries that have one thing in common. You know, they are enabled by high capacity factor, low cost, clean energy. And that clean energy is, you know, whatever, 60, 70, 80% of their total cost structure, right? And so you're, you're not waiting for direct air capture, for instance, to get, you know, for some breakthrough catalytic technology. You're just looking at like how cheap can, uh, can the power I put into that direct air capture machine get and how, what is the price of carbon societally and where do they cross? And that's it. And if, you know, if you step back and you just look at the state of our world, the fires and the floods and the hurricanes, you, you, you'd have to be an absolute moron not to think that we're going to put a price on carbon, no matter what your politics are. It's just, you know, if just, if you're a person building a business plan today and you don't take into account that there will be some kind of value to carbon, you, you know, I, I don't think you should be in business. And so when you look at, when you look at that, future state that we're planning for, we get to kind of what we call these inevitable industries. And we've identified five of them. And those are, you know, green hydrogen and, and to some degree, you know, e-fuels kind of upcycling hydrogen to longer chain hydrocarbons, direct air capture, the electrification of thermal loads, fully 20% of all carbon emissions comes from basically boiling water for industry, um, ma- mass scale EV charging. And we can talk a bit more about why that's different from things that look like gas pumps in mall parking lots. Um, you know, and desalination. So these are like, well, I see these as five industries that barely exist today that will be trillion dollar global industries in 30 years. And the one thing they all have in common is high capacity factor, cheap, you know, clean electricity. And, And so, you know, for us, we're focused on not only generating the electricity for those markets, but finding the opportunities to even to vertically integrate. Not all of them are going to be places where we are, you know, set up to do so, but we believe there will be large areas where we can vertically integrate to be 
essentially a, a, a soup to nuts kind of clean energy, clean commodity platform company. So you mentioned high capacity factor. So it feels to me like every, you know, a company that is building a technology in every one of those spaces, direct air capture, green hydrogen, industrial electrification, desalination, whatever it might be. Um, like you said, the sort of fundamental thing that unifies all of them, apart from being decarbonization solutions, is that at the end of the day, a big chunk of their input cost, you know, all mostly all of their OPEX, and maybe that'll be more than their CAPEX, is going to be borne in the cost of electricity. And so there's this fundamental balance. They have to find for any given project between capacity factor, do they got to do they have to run all the time um, versus cost because they want the cheapest power. And you said high capacity factor, which actually kind of surprised me because my assumption was what you were talking about before, let's find the best possible site for the cheapest possible renewables. It doesn't need to be grid connected. It doesn't have to be, you know, there's no interconnection cost. There's no like land issue or anything like that, that what you end up with then is extremely cheap power part of the time. So you end up with 30% capacity factor solar or something like that. Is that not what you're picturing? It, it could be, but only really enabled by significant subsidies, which are on their way um, in the infrastructure package. So I think you'll see some of that get, get done in the near term, um, you know, because because you, you know, with a $3 a kilogram hydrogen PTC, you can, you can do that. Um, but I think... You know, going into the future, as we look 10, 20, 30 years out and how hydrogen will replace many of the hydrocarbon and sort of, you know, the, the, the fuels that can't be replaced with electricity. I think you'll, you know, you'll see that um, the capacity factor matters because while, while the OPEX of these things is, is the bulk of their cost and it's electricity, the CAPEX is still high, right? An electrolyzer right now, you know, if you're paying a thousand bucks a KW, you know, it's, it's, uh, do you want to double? Do you want to effectively pay three thousand dollars a kW by having a thirty percent capacity factor on that electrolyzer, right? Or do you want to build a wind solar hybrid plant um, where you can get to seventy percent capacity factor plus, and now you're taking much less of a hit to your capex? So you're right in that. Right now, on the front end, when you have heavy subsidies, it won't matter as much. And on the back end, when the capex of all of this stuff goes to very low, it won't matter as much. But probably from you know the middle part of the decade or the late part of this decade to you know for ten or fifteen years, it'll matter a lot. And and then what's more, once you get out beyond that, even as capex goes down on these things, in a competitive market, you're going to want to be the lowest cost of hydrogen, right? And the way to do that is to have a higher, the highest capacity factor, no matter what the capex of an electrolyzer might be. If you can get cheap power at that high capacity factor. I mean, all things equal, of course you want that, right? But the dynamic today is you can get cheap power part of the time, more expensive power all the time. You can get, you can get cheap power at capacity factors. We see capacity factors north of 70 for very cheap power. Um, you know, and, 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 and so, you know, Again, you got to think about what very cheap power is, right? It's not $16 megawatt hour. It's, you know, like these technologies don't need $16 megawatt hour. They turn on and work at like 30, right? I mean, like if you can get 70% capacity factors at $30 right now, you know, with a, even, a, even, even less than a $3 a kilogram subsidy and, and you know, as the subsidy goes down, the, the capex of, you know, the capex on the electrolyzer goes down, you can, you can make hydrogen, you know, very competitively, uh, with renewable prices that are very supportable, let's put it that way. Let's talk about those five 
sectors that you talked about is the inevitable sector. So green hydrogen and then synthetic fuels born out of green hydrogen is one, direct air capture, uh, industrial heat electrification, really high volume, big EV charging, and then desalination. Um, maybe you don't have to list all five in order, but like, which of those do you think are imminent and which of those do you think are massive markets in 30 years, but small markets in five to 10? So the ones that we're most focused on, like, like it's basically in that order. We, and, and, you know, some of that's because we're not, we're not, you know, uh, we're not next era. We're not in Venergy. We're, we're a relatively small player still. And, uh, uh, you know, we do a lot of megawatts for, for our, our, our headcount, but, uh, at the end of the day, we have to, you know, we've, we've been successful because we've remained very focused. So, you know, hydrogen is by far and away the place where we're going to put the most, you know, uh, muscle in the next, you know, two years. Um, we want to get that off the ground, make that a, a, a real business, not just a kind of a what comes next business development opportunity. Um, direct air capture is what I think is beyond that. And, and we've chosen that for a number of reasons. Um, I, I won't say because I'm deeply familiar with the technology. And I think, you know, we've taken a techno-economic, you know, three-year look and we think it's better than, you know, electric boilers for thermal loads. Like, that's not why. Um, I, I'm, I'm more looking at um, the markets and kind of trusting my gut on where um, some of the political and, and social and business wins are going. And I think that um, the very, very large oil and gas companies are going to come in on the side of, you know, like basically using their expertise in, you know, what's under the ground um, to put carbon back in the ground. And I think that that's going to create huge opportunities for mega direct air capture uh, uh, facilities. So I'm not necessarily as bullish in direct air capture that we would necessarily vertically integrate into, you know, the actual ownership of the, the unit. But I think we would be, you know, a potential partner to, you know, site a mega project with, uh, because we're not subsurface experts and things like that. So, but I think that comes next. I think it has to, because I think real, realistically, it, <laughs> we don't have a choice. Um, and, and the, and it's, it's very politically viable. Um, and then the electrification of thermal loads, um, I, you know, the reason it's kind of third on our list is because, um, the technology is there. It's just honestly not been really, it's, 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 it's such not a sexy technology, right? Boiling water. Let's boil water with electricity. Let's, you know, let's, let's, uh, I mean, now at certain pressures and certain temperatures, you know, there's nothing that's going to replace, you know, like, you know, you know, fuels, right? Uh, and so you're going to have to probably even use hydrogen to burn, to boil water for certain applications. Um, but for many, many applications, like something like 70% of the market is, is, is addressable at temperatures and pressures that, you know, we're talking food processing, you know, like, Anyway, so that that I think is a huge, uh, a huge market, and then, um, and I, and I think it, it's we see it as being like one of those things we'll be chasing in the next two to th four years, call it because it's um, again it doesn't require kind of a a massive um, societal change like the 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 point sources of emissions are fairly centralized. You can do a, a deal with one company that has three paper mills or whatever, right? Now, as you get down into kind of mass scale EV charging, desalination, you start getting into sectors that require a little bit more change in consumer behavior, right? And these are things that for someone like us that doesn't really play in the consumer markets, you know, that's, that's just not something we bet on quite as, quite as aggressively. So I don't know that that's necessarily a, a clear delineation of why we prioritize anything. It's maybe just a 
walk through the madness of my my mind. <laughs> but but um, what I think is interesting about it, and maybe I'll close with with this question as a result, is I, what I like about this perspective is you think of um, you think of a company like Intersect Power. You're developing utility scale renewables and storage, and owning and operating them, and financing them, uh, and you know, it's easy to imagine that business just being the business forever, or at least for the next decades to come, because we all know there's a lot more of that that we're going to do and that we need to do. But this is sort of an additional layer on that, which is saying, actually, what's going to happen is that this business that we're in, producing power using renewables, is going to fuel a bunch of new sectors. And so we need to figure out what those sectors are going to be, and we need to be able to take advantage of them either by vertically integrating, as you said, maybe we get into those businesses or just by being positioned well to provide the power, the kind of power at the price and the availability that these sectors need. So I guess my final question then is what is Intersect Power in a decade? Like paint a picture for me of what the business looks like then. (laughs) There's about nine things uh, going through my mind right now, trying to answer that question. Um, uh, I, I think I'll try to, put a bow on a lot of what we've said here by saying even the fundamentals of the core business, not even the sexy part of the business, but just the core business, the stuff we talked about with contracts, you know, the, 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 the increasing demand that's going to drive scale economies, um, the changes in how we finance these things, all of these things are pushing us more toward platform companies, right? The days of the build and flip developer are over, right? So we're, we are going to have operational IPP, what we've traditionally called kind of IPPs, right? That, that's sort of like the price of entry. If you're not an IPP, you're just basically a, a vassal or a, a, you know, like a, a surf serving the Lord of next era, flipping your, you know, projects at relatively low, low margins to, uh, to them. Uh, you know, so, so I think that like, that's just the, the base case price of entry. I think what interests me most in these new technologies is there is now for the first time a growth story in infrastructure, right? Infrastructure has been boring for decades. Why? Because it was all built, right? Infrastructure was really exciting in the early part of the 20th century, right? Electricity was the internet, right? You know, growth was ab- abundant, right? These were the, the new technologies that were reshaping society. And we're going into an era where we're going to literally replace all of that, right? We're moving from where growth in the infrastructure seg- segment was, you know, painting the walls of the coal power, power plant, you know, control room to an era where, where we're going to replace all the technology of our entire energy and industrial system with all new carbon-free technology. Infrastructure is now a growth business. I think that that leads to public market stories. I think you're going to see something like Intersect be... A, an IPP with a huge growth story around vertical integration into new technologies will be able to pub, tap public markets or very, very large strategic partnerships that will allow us to grow to be, you know, much, much larger than most, you know, of the kind of small renewable IPPs that have come up to date. And, you know, I, I think there has to be someone that stands between kind of, you know, the the boring sort of, you know, ex-infrastructure finance guy who's, you know, telling a story about, you know, kind of making an IPP, but making it clean and Elon Musk, right? Like someone on the hype spectrum, somebody has got to stand between those two people. And I'd like to be that person. 
I think our company can can provide a little more visibility to the growth and excitement that this sector can 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 deliver. Um, but uh, but maybe be a little bit you know a little bit less uh, uh, illicit substances on Rogan. So yeah, a little more grounded. I like that. You're, you're you'll, you'll be halfway to Elon Musk in ten years. That's kind of the but never want to get all the way there. I I like it. But we have to tell we have to tell that story, right? Because if we don't tell that story, if we don't if we can't tell people about the growth, then this industry will never achieve the cost of funds that it needs to. And you know I'll be choking on smoke, and so will my kids for the next. Hundred years. I also think it's it's honestly it's like an important message to send because it's uh, to my mind unappreciated how much new clean power we're going to need. If if any of what you're forget it. If nothing that you said plays out, we're going to need a ton of new clean power because we got to decarbonize the electricity sector. Now add the electrification of any one of those five sectors, and it's each one of those is terawatts, right? So this is the, the, the sort of amount of infrastructure we're going to need. And then all the infrastructure that comes with that. If these things are grid connected, we need transmission, distribution, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's monumental. And so you, you kind of can't, you can't not tell that story and then still expect us to build out everything we're going to need to build. And next time, next time, next time we have a discussion uh, uh, on on your show here, I'll tell you more about the work I'm doing, helping to sort of mentor and uh, and and invest in uh, some really out there stuff um, that's a little bit more personal and and less intersect. But uh, uh, I actually think there's opportunities for um, orbital solar that I think is going to be really really exciting in the coming you know the coming two decades. Um, I know that it's something that's been, it's something that even I ridiculed for a very long time. Um, but, but, uh, I, I think we're, I think there are things that people haven't even begun to think about that are going to be required to make this change. All right. You heard it here. Next episode, space-based solar. That's, uh, with, with Sheldon Kimber, uh, Sheldon, thank you so much for doing this. I will, I will have you back. We'll definitely spend more time here. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, a really good time. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look forward to the next time. Sheldon Kimber is the CEO and co-founder of Intersect Power. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. <laughs>